0: Previously on Conspiracy Theology. I don't know how, but it figured out how to get out. It got loose. The carnivores Rex got loose. It's here. The virus knows we're here. It took out the entire complex, and now, it's hunting us! Let's get up, boys! Millions are gone, but we aren't out of the fight yet. The only good coronavirus is a dead coronavirus. This time, part two of our discussion on pandemic fears. As the current outbreak in China continues to evolve in both scale and impact, we take the time to review current status, hear some interesting news regarding the coronavirus, and explore the importance of communication tactics. I'm Ryan Nelson and welcome to Conspiracy Theology. Welcome back theologists. It is time to continue our discussion on pandemic mania. Before we do, I have a big ask for you this episode. Podcasting is growing, and we have new listeners coming into the medium every day. They face a sea of options and shows and topics, so if you enjoy conspiracy theorology, I'm going to ask that you go and recommend the show to someone your help in growing the audience is going to be the single best way to help the show. Okay, let's get into it. While I originally planned and promised that we would begin exploring the history of the Spanish flu, as per usual with our topics that begin as envisioned two-parters, it quickly became a trilogy. The reason for this is twofold. First and foremost, the coronavirus, as suspected, had a lot of news since part one. Not only does the coronavirus have an official name, but the world has been issued an official naming convention. The hot new website development trend is to set up a coronavirus information dashboard. And some pretty fascinating conspiracy theories have surfaced regarding the origin of the coronavirus. Oh, and Spotlight Envy has generated backlash against coronavirus media coverage and public focus, as we are now being reminded that the flu, and flu-related illness, was the real killer all along, and this flash-in-the-pan interloper needs to be put in its place. Secondary to all this, the Spanish flu has been a fascinating research effort, and in truth, I knew I wouldn't do it justice trying to get the episode out while also keeping up with all things coronavirus. As it is, this episode is releasing much later than I planned. The Spanish flu is inseparably linked to World War I as a topic, which means that historical research is more than just a medical timeline of outbreaks and tracking statistics. So, with that said, part three will give us Plenty of room to discuss the 1918 influenza outbreak without having to preface the episode with lots of current event updates at the top of the episode. All of this today, and a little theoryology as we explore the psychology of pandemic and try to understand why we respond the way we do, and what approaches are being taken by world governments, international organizations, and news media intentionally to shape the public response. Let's first go through an update of the coronavirus outbreak numbers. Now, I'm sure you've kept up with the news, and perhaps with part one under your belt of our discussion in your mind, you've also been paying attention to the ever-evolving comparisons being tried and tested as news media attempts to equate this outbreak with some previous event, such as SARS or MERS, Also, as predicted, the recent articles are now beginning to refer to the outbreak as the flu-like coronavirus. Because, of course, it ultimately has to maintain the existential fear that sells over-the-counter drugs and opens the funding floodgates for vaccine development. Still, media hype aside, this outbreak has impacted real people, and the numbers have increased. So as we talk about everything, I do want you to know that that has been kept in mind. Now, as of this recording, over 75,000 cases have been confirmed, with the caveat that we'll get into in a minute, with over 2,000 deaths worldwide. Those are the stats that are reported everywhere, and it, it paints a horrific picture of what is to come as this continues to spread, if it continues to spread a 2% plus death rate has remained consistent throughout the duration of the outbreak and while that percentage equates to a relatively small number at this point as you'll remember us discussing in part 1 that that's fairly equivalent to the uh, spanish flu it's uh, you know definitely frequently posited that a 2% impact means drastic loss of life once this presumably highly contagious illness truly hits other populated areas of the world, especially those areas that are underdeveloped or lacking in modern infrastructure. All of this, on the surface, is kind of true, and the potential impact implied, well, it's obvious. Two percent is a big number when the number of confirmed cases gets into the millions or tens of millions. But this is one of those cases where the numbers lie. Well, okay, maybe not lie, but the numbers are being used to tell part of the story and shape opinion. Let's take time to look at the numbers in more detail. And I'll shape the narrative in different ways. The sources that I'm using for pulling these numbers, you may have seen in just some high-level uh, point or referenced in a report. Uh, I'll link below in the show notes for the uh, two reports that really provide this, this drastic detail of numbers, this broken down detail, uh, so that you can review it and uh, uh, and look at it on your own. Let's first talk about confirmed cases and what that means. Remember, there's 75,000 plus cases. I mean, as I'm looking at it right now, it says 75,200 cases. And, I'm sure if I refresh this thing by the end of recording, it will have gone up. Regardless, confirmed, it's, it's a strong word. Now this virus is new, and it doesn't come with a label that you can see in a microscope. The only way to truly confirm infection of this specific coronavirus is through something called a PCR test, which is the polymerase chain reaction. And I think I pronounced that correctly, which identifies the genome sequence of the virus. This this testing is in its infancy, even with the fast tracking being done as a result of the outbreak. For now, many cases are confirmed only through best guess diagnosis based on symptoms and probability of exposure by the patient. I mean, in the U.S., only the CDC is testing. And that's with the small number of cases that are there. So you can imagine in China, it's, it's being done pretty much, you know, uh, it, at arm's length and at best guess and with whatever best materials they have. I mean, in other words, if you have a fever and an upper respiratory infection sort of symptoms, and you are in an area that has clinically confirmed cases or have been around those who have, then they just treat you like you are a victim of this current outbreak. And maybe that's for safety's sake, right? The numbers spiked by 15,000 back on February 12th in China, precisely because they started to include cases that were evaluated through a different means. In that case, they were just using a, a CT lung scan. So... Looking at the, the 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 scans and seeing uh, signs of inflammation uh, and signs of infection, the, the they're they're taking a, a precautionary stance and at that point diagnosing a coronavirus infection. Now, mind you, regardless of how they're doing it, and even if we take for granted that all confirmed cases are are legitimate and will prove to be confirmed cases Uh, that 75,000 number which is high and does sound very large uh, and and it is don't get me wrong (laughs) 75,000 people getting sick from one virus within three months is extreme but of those cases let's put that into context over 74,000 of them are in mainland China and another six hundred plus are on the uh that cruise ship, the Diamond Princess, that's that's stuck in the port in Japan. Um at least as of this recording though, my understanding is they're gonna get everybody off and, and screen them all. That only leaves about four hundred cases across the rest of the world outside of China. So the lion's share of cases, seventy four thousand, probably seventy four thousand five hundred ish, are in mainland China, well, China has a population of 1.4 billion people. That's a 0.00000, 0000 something six percent uh, of the population that has contracted, confirmed, contracted, and even then confirmed through diagnosis, uh, not even confirmed on actual presence of the virus of the coronavirus. So. Yes, it is an epidemic, but no, it's not the entire population of China. So let's talk about the deaths, 2,000 plus. In fact, looking at it now, and I'm looking at it up on the screen, it's over 2,100 now, growing by the day. Now, we've talked about this previously. And remember, over 80% of deaths associated to the outbreak are occurring with those over 60 years old. And, of course, most include those comorbidities, right? Other conditions that make them susceptible, make their bodies weak. You know, this is 2% plus of confirmed cases that are seeing this death. Not 2% of a a general population, 2% of confirmed cases. Of course, now, on the flip side, we could talk about the recovered this report I look at actually refers to recovered patients as those that have been released from hospital care. And that's around 16,000 people. Now, 16,000 people. Okay, so this doesn't actually sound that good. I mean, does it? It's only, what, 18%, 19% of the confirmed cases have recovered. I mean, the rest must be waiting to die, right? But that, that would be incorrect. First, You know, these are actually numbers for those that were released, as I said, from hospital care, meaning only those that had cases severe enough to require hospitalization or more intense medical care. So still, I mean, the recovery rate is much better than the death rate by a multiple of of seven or eight. I mean, people are recovering. Even the most severe cases are more likely to end in recovery and release and not death. And what about those severe cases? Well, it's 35%, when I last checked, of the total confirmed are actually severe cases. Now, that 35% is a compilation of the total deaths, the total recovered, and the total that are currently considered severe and requiring hospitalization and for for reference those severe cases typically are those people that have formed a secondary infection of uh you know rather severe level such as a, a, an acute uh pneumonia bacterial pneumonia or something that has that has formed after the fact and again many of these people are in high risk groups all those numbers aside another number that no one talks about are the mild cases everything that all of those confirmed cases left that actually just simply exhibit very mild symptoms mild cold or flu like symptoms and that's upwards of 65% in other words you are more likely to uh if if you do contract this to exhibit a very mild uh form of this of this virus very mild symptoms cold like mild flu-like symptoms, especially if you are not in a high-risk group. And actually, the news is coming out. I don't even have a, a good reference in front of me, but it's been discussed uh, uh, actually in several news reports that they're discovering that the the of the two high-risk groups, the very young and the elderly, the very young, those that are under, say, four or five years old, have not been at risk for this this virus this this uh coronavirus doesn't actually seem to be impacting that demographic and i i consider that a a blessing that's wonderful you know we can all kind of breathe easy with that one um but uh it does mean that the majority of the of impacts especially lethal impacts and high mortality rates are occurring in the um both the older population as well as uh, populations of those that are already compromised. So that's the numbers, and I wanted to update you. Um, you know, we could go over it more uh, and and play with the statistics and play with the numbers and spin that. But but really, it's it's just a game of keeping up with the charts. Uh, I, you know, as we see the the majority when you're comparing the numbers, if you actually start to think about it and look at it in pieces. Um, There are some incongruities and discrepancies. Uh, Mainland China, which is the lion's share of all of these numbers, does exhibit a 2% death rate currently. Uh, But, of course, the suspicion is that China has not uh, been able to report all of the cases accurately. Are they under-reporting? Are they over-reporting? But in comparison, the rest of the world, with their four cases, uh, their four deaths, outside of mainland China, there have been four deaths and with about 400 cases right across the globe. Uh, that's, (laughs) that's, it's, it's, it's about a 1% rate. Um, now could it be because other countries are being a bit more reserved in their reporting of these cases until they confirm them? Uh, and, and, and are they waiting for these testing kits to come out? Uh, I don't know. Uh, it, it, it's, it's curious, uh, but, but it's it's playing out, and I mean, if anything, it it might be worth asking the question of um, uh, to China, why why is this so impactful if it's not impacting everywhere else, even neighboring countries? So uh, yeah, that's 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 how I'm looking at it. But uh, again, I'm going to have these these links uh, for this interactive map and and other stuff in the show notes for you to take a look at if you really want to dive into it and track it and follow it. Uh, I'm, I'm, uh, kind of, kind of at wit's end having tracked all this. So, you know what, let's, let's get past the numbers. Let's, let's quit talking about the, the numbers and the percentages and all of that stuff. Cause that's just stats. And, uh, it definitely can, can separate you a bit too much from the reality of what's going on when you're just, when you're just tracking, tracking the stats. I, I guess the bigger thing here, the, the bigger news, more exciting news is that, um, the uh, the coronavirus it 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 got a name right I mean, in regard to this outbreak uh the big news is that we now have an official name for the outbreak event and i i keep i say that specifically to separate that from this apparently is not the name of the virus itself it's a sars type virus it's given some sort of specific name this is specifically for the outbreak event. Now I would say, you know, just to be sarcastic that it's it's really good marketing, but apparently there is a purpose. Uh not only to identify and differentiate this particular event, but uh to establish or I guess more accurately bring to light a naming convention for future infection outbreaks. This disease caused by the, the this new coronavirus uh, out of China that has now sickened uh, over seventy five thousand people has an official name COVID nineteen C O V I D nineteen and as fun as it sounds and it does roll off the tongue, it simply stands for the coronavirus disease that was discovered or identified in twenty nineteen. The World Health Organization announced the name back on uh, Tuesday. Uh, actually, I, I think Tuesday of last week. The premise is a careful naming convention without stigma, as to, as they put it. Uh, essentially, the, the, they're saying that, that they had to find a name that didn't refer to the geographical location or an animal or a group of people that from the WHO Director General. Uh, It's, you know, it's also easy to pronounce, and and I think that was uh, no small uh, aspect of it as well. You know, naming these illnesses, honestly, isn't as easy uh, as you might think it it is. Um, And definitely, I think people have had taint uh, or have had fun doing that in the past, uh, perhaps being colloquial, perhaps thinking that they were identifying something. uh, But yeah, it's not as straightforward. The original name on this, as you'll remember if you pay paying attention to it, was NCoV 2019, which stood for Novel Coronavirus discovered in 2019. And that's no more creative than the name now. It just doesn't quite roll as well. Uh, people aren't going to walk around remembering the 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 experience they had with that NCoV uh, 2019. It, Remember, you know, there's a lot of different coronaviruses. It's a group of viruses. Some cause these mild illnesses like the cold. And others can cause uh, definitely more dangerous respiratory diseases like COVID-19 is suspected to be. There's another aspect to these outbreaks that we really don't often think of. And that's the potential to have an impact on the country, the community, uh, or even the the economic group um that <laughs> that it's Im- that could be impacted you know uh for example mers is the middle east respiratory syndrome well you know it was named because it was first reported in saudi arabia but it also suggests that there's some sort of you know that there's something about the middle east that it originated that there's a cause there that it it's a place from which you could contract this. And and, and that's not necessarily true. Uh, likewise, the, the pandemic in 2009, which picked up the name swine flu, it, they actually renamed it and referred to it simply as H1N1 in reference to the flu strain now. Uh, but before then, that swine flu label was only picked up because the CDC... Uh, had said that they had lab tests originally that showed that the virus was similar to influenza virus strains that were known to circulate in uh, pigs, and you know, swine populations. Well, even though there wasn't any evidence that it was going to spread through eating pork uh, or being around pork, I mean, it, it had a tremendous effect. And some of you are nodding your heads remembering this disaster for, for the pork farming industry. There was a a huge decline in sales. To respond to that, the WHO had developed guidelines for naming these emerging diseases. And uh, here, let's go over some of those uh, aspects of it. We're going to look at this document uh, from the World Health Organization that is simply titled The WHO Best Practices for the Naming of New Human Infectious Diseases. Uh, and they state that the the objective is, uh, given that the increasingly rapid and in global communication through social media and other electronic means, and I'm quoting, it is important that an appropriate disease name is assigned by those who first report a new human disease. WHO strongly encouraged scientists National authorities, the national and international media, and other stakeholders to follow the best practices set out in this document when naming a human disease. And they go on to say, if an inappropriate name is released or used, uh, or the disease remains unnamed, the uh, WHO, the agency responsible for global public health events, may issue an interim name for the diseases and recommend its use so that inappropriate names do not become established." End quote. Well, what does that mean? Okay. So, one, they're applying to a group. You know, that's infections and syndromes or diseases of humans specifically, and those that have never been recognized before in humans, and that have the potential for a public health impact, and finally, in situations where no disease name is yet established and in common usage. Okay, so they find something new. So the new coronavirus that was first discovered in Wuhan, China um, is a perfect example. And uh, so how did they do that? Well, let's let's apply the best practices, okay? What they want is generic description, uh, dis- generic descriptive terms uh, that can be used in any name. Uh, generic terms are useful when these the the details and, and the information on the disease or the syndrome isn't really that robust, that full, when we don't know necessarily all of the symptoms. We don't know exactly how it originated. Um, and so we wanna get down to basic characteristics that are unlikely to change as even as it unfolds and more information becomes available. Right? Things like it's a respiratory disease or hepatitis. Or it's neurological, something to that effect. Um, then they recommend that specific descriptive terms be used whenever information is is available and considered robust enough that uh, vast changes, as they say, to the epidemiology or clinical picture are unlikely to occur. Right, and that so that progressive, uh, juvenile, severe, uh, winter. <laughs> You know, to identify a specific season or, or or climatological situation, they also recommend that if the causative pathogen is known, that it should be used as part of the name. You know, i.e., coronavirus respiratory syndrome. Uh, the name should be short. Ha! We've got that. COVID. Smooth. It's easy to pronounce. It flows. And they say that because you know that long names are likely to be shortened into an acronym, and uh, and so if it has a, a a longer name that's needed, that that they should actually give consideration to the acronyms that could potentially be used, uh, that they still fall into the best practices. Obviously, there's a lot of thought here. Ultimately, it's it's I, I can go through this a little faster you know right general descriptive terms specific descriptive terms uh like uh, age group or population of patients uh severity seasonality environment causative pathogen as we said uh, the year of first detection or of reporting uh and perhaps an arbitrary identifier if it needs to be numbered you know if there's multiple ones that occurred in that in that year or in a specific region that's that's the naming convention, and all those seem pretty practical, right? How is that different from what's been done in the past? Aha! Well, let's, let's look at the second table included in these guidelines, table B, which is those terms that may not be included in the disease names. And that is categories such as geographic location, i.e. the cities, the countries, the regions. Um, things that were done in the past are examples to be avoided the Middle East respiratory syndrome, the Spanish flu, Lyme disease, uh, the uh, Crimean-Congo hemorrhagic fever, Japanese encephalitis, right? All of those are tied to specific places and make it sound pretty scary. Uh, They also say not to use people's names, uh, like the crutzfeldt Jacob disease. Uh, Then there's Species and class of animals or food: swine flu, bird flu, monkey pox, equine encephalitis. Uh, the reason they say this, of course, is like our example that we discussed in terms of swine flu, where it had nothing to do with swine flu. Uh, in fact, uh, in that case, with that uh, that strain uh, flu strain, it was humans that passed it along to the swine. It didn't originate with them. Poor swine! All those pigs—they got blamed for a flu and it wasn't even their fault then another category to not include cultural population industry or occupational references things like we're all familiar with legionnaires disease um miners butchers cooks nurses so the idea that this outbreak uh, outbreak i guess you could you could link this coronavirus to um you know Fishmongers or seafood workers or, or uh, um, you know this this market these market uh tradesmen and sellers uh and and so then somehow it's it's the idea is that there's a connotation that's associated, and of course, finally they talk about a category of terms that incite undue fear right uh things that are, don't use terms like unknown or death. <laughs> The Black Death, right? We don't want the Wuhan Death. That would be a horrible title. It would, <laughs> it would be terrifying. The news wouldn't even have to try to convince you to be scared. The Wuhan Death sounds like China is the source of the apocalypse. Uh, don't use terms like fatal. Don't throw the terms epidemic in there. Um, don't throw the term pandemic in there. So, you know, that's... That's really the guideline. What's interesting about this guideline that I didn't point out at the beginning intentionally is that while it may seem like this is something that is reactionary to this coronavirus, that they whipped this up and, and worked on this to to bring this out and um, uh, avoid perhaps what we would consider politically incorrect connotations for populations in China and stuff, it, actually, this was introduced back in 2015, uh, and it's something that they had been considering since that uh, that uh, outbreak in two thousand nine. So it's something that they had considered because of the impact on multiple regions, and uh, I, this obviously presented the opportunity to do it. I won't say that they they took the opportunity or profited from it. This is simply a guideline that they're using, uh, and I think it's caught on. People are fine with using COVID. Nineteen, uh, and so uh, you know it. It's it's accurate, if not boring. Um, and um, and so it, it'll it'll stick, and I think most people will stick to that convention, that naming convention from now on. But that's that's a big aspect. You know, another aspect that's come out that I've noticed in the last uh, few weeks is that everybody has a website. Who, CDC. Uh, health and Human Services uh, Health and yeah, Health and Human Services The DOD has something whipped up The Department of Defense in the US I'm sure uh, there are agencies within The EU, I'm sure there's uh, Agencies in Australia I'm sure there's agencies all over the world Asia and, uh, and, and The like that have developed Pages like awesome Pages, you know, not just Not just a, a simple information Page, but like a fully uh, interactive uh, and informative dashboard of, of charts and tables and reports and, and data on the coronavirus and what to do's and how to take care of yourselves and how to avoid. And and here's a table for this, and here's an interactive map here, and here's a latest study, and here's an explanation on virology and the genomics of the coronavirus that none of us can understand anyway, but it sounds like it's extremely important. Um, that is definitely something that has occurred with this, perhaps more so than any of the previous uh, outbreaks uh, that had occurred in the last you know, 10, 15 years, simply probably as a product of capability, but also as a means of informing the public. Uh, as far as the motivations or intentions, I'm sure it's to to inform the public just in general with information, but... It, of course, it it could have other purposes. It it does drive along with all of the information. These sites are also um, uh, enlisting uh, submissions from the from the various uh, industries and and labs and and companies that are developing uh, antigen approaches and and studying in a position to study the virus and 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 develop responses. So, definitely people are lining up to start taking various grant money and research funds. If it hasn't been apparent, now that we've talked about the websites, now that we've talked about the naming convention, now that we've gone over uh, in detail the numbers that are being reported, um, you know, off of this wonderful interactive uh, map of information that, that I've been using, speaking of interactive, and And it wasn't to me, until I saw everything covered today, uh, compiled, really all together, that there's a theme. And that theme is communication. I mean, it it seems apparent that outside of China proper, the dissemination of information regarding the risk of pandemic is more important than actually addressing the treatment for the infection itself. You know, it's... Currently, at least right now, it is not as dangerous outside of China as it is inside. Now, I'm sure there are plenty of researchers that would argue that point with me, Uh, and I'm not trying to make a, a scientific claim on that here. I'm just looking at the numbers. Now, what I did find was that the World Economic Forum makes the statement, quote, we humans are famously bad at making decisions in already uncertain conditions. So that gets to, perhaps, the heart of all of this communication approach. World Economic Forum then asks the question, how can unpredictable global threats be communicated to most effectively guide our decision-making? Okay, we've heard the term before, right? They want to guide our decision-making. They want to shape the narrative. They want to control the story. They want to make sure that you are, from a positive perspective, They want to make sure you're making the most informed decisions. Uh, The other way to look at it, of course, is that they want you to make the decisions they want you to make. Now, past research, as the the World Economic Forum points out, suggests that people are notoriously unwilling to make sacrifices for others when the benefits are uncertain. And this goes into a little bit of the psychology of uncertainty, which We'll be talking more about in future episodes uh, other, on other topics. Just know that uncertainty is, is a whole realm of, of discussion and how we think about it. Now, in the cases of pandemics specifically, this means that people would be especially unlikely to spend time going to a clinic or canceling a vacation because it's, it's not guaranteed that steps like that will help stop the spread of the disease. As we see, people are trying to move. uh, And uh, even if they're being quarantined, uh, some people are just trying to get home, some people are trying to get to work, some people are just trying to live. Thus, the uncertainty inherent to infectious diseases provides the ideal conditions for their spread. Risk-seeking decisions in social situations. So the forum goes on to say that they're their work that was conducted as part of a uh the Oxford Martin program on collective responsibility for infectious diseases shows that when people have have to make decisions that might harm others they tend to act as if things will work out just fine so they go on with some examples right they in one of their studies they asked uh several hundred people whether they would stay home from work when infected with a fictional African flu, which would be costly for their career but would help limit the spread of the disease, sometimes they had even highlighted with, with some samples of, of the uh, of those questioned that it was uncertain whether they would infect a coworker if they went to work. It was that uncertainty that made the difference. It made people less willing to sacrifice and stay home. It was consistent with previous studies on that uncertainty, that uh, people said they were willing to risk hurting someone else for their own benefit if that harm was not certain to occur. So, they also conclude that there is a a more effective way to communicate uncertain threats like infectious diseases. They say when uncertainty about human welfare is emphasized, in example, how Much others might suffer from an infection. People instead strive to prevent the worst-case scenario. So, you know, in those studies, um, when they had highlighted the chance that going to work might infect either someone young there uh, and healthy for whom the infection wouldn't be a problem, or possibly an elderly person for whom the infection could be very serious The participants in the study said they were more willing to sacrifice and stay home. And and in other words, directing people's attention to the uncertain impact of their actions on the well-being of others actually made them more willing to take on uh, uh, risk and cost to prevent others from potential harm. So, that study basically says, you know, in short, that the way an infectious disease is communicated uh, will drastically determine the outcome of people's actions. And uh, we we see that now. You can see that if you look at across the articles, across the different organizations, agencies, and even between the different governments, people are taking different approaches. Um, and you might go back and rethink, how is this, what you've heard, shaped your uh, thoughts on, should we close the uh, borders against travelers from China? Completely, 100%. Or should everybody that comes from a highly infected region uh, be quarantined for some specified amount of time? Um, or is it okay for people to self quarantine? Uh, or any number of things? What is, has the news and information been given to you shape your, or even change your opinion as this thing unfolds? So it it's really interesting, that, that psychology of uncertainty and how that plays out and impacts these infectious diseases and these outbreaks. Okay, so as I mentioned earlier, now that we've we've gotten through the theoryology and we've talked about the coronavirus, I, I wanted to throw in because I came across some fun conspiracy theories that have surfaced. And of course, maybe this is part of the communication. Uh, depending on the communication that's given or not given, people have come to uh, some interesting conclusions. Uh, Now, here's a list from beforeitsnews.com. The first one is that China itself unleashed the virus on its own people to stifle dissent and in protests uh, that were going on in Hong Kong. They were moving to uh, regions right outside of Wuhan and causing some big problems um, and so, you know, the argument is that, yes, the Chinese government has released this. So now they have justification to eradicate dissidents and simply blame the coronavirus. The other option, if you don't think that it could be quite that uh, malicious, is that China accidentally unleashed the virus from its lab in Wuhan. Remember, Wuhan has that great BSL-4 facility, um, uh, that's apparently actually a covert bioweapons program. And so since it accidentally unleashed it right now, they're just having to try and contain it and handle the mess. So that's pretty interesting. The third one is that the global elites are using the coronavirus to scare people into accepting vaccines containing, you know, anything of them. Now, again, I don't know where you stand on on the vaccine position, Um But this is a, obviously this was going to come into play. And as I said, this is being used absolutely to promote, uh, if not the administration of vaccines to a population, definitely the funding and development of vaccines. So this is not a far stretch for people to have come to this conclusion. Um, It's, it happened immediately. Uh, The the government started throwing money at, at research facilities and labs and organizations. Um, number four, the United States is using the virus as a biological weapon against China that was specifically designed and targeted against the Chinese population as a method of undeclared war. That would be fascinating. I I don't know if um, bioweapon genomic technology has gotten that far, but uh, that we could actually find some way to specify a group of people that live inside a... An imaginary man-made border uh, on a map, but uh, but yeah, you know that it, where that stems from, right? Obviously, is that the U.S. If you're not familiar with it, this last year or so, there's there's been a trade war uh, ongoing between the U.S. and China, and and it has been heated at times, and there's been a lot of back and forth. Uh, this is obviously a conclusion that can come from that. Uh, then number five. The New World Order elite is using the virus as a biological weapon against all of humanity, right? This isn't country against country. This is the NWO against all the rest of us. In an effort to drastically reduce the human population without those, you know, nasty side effects like nuclear war and, and uh, I guess, world war damage and, and, and other arsenal. This ties into the idea of those theories of population control and fears and all that stuff. Honestly, the best one, the best theory out there that I really enjoy is that <laughs> combining all of the available facts, we cannot rule out a viral in-fall event targeting the Wuhan province and the wider region around it as an explanation as a first cause of the epidemic. Now, what did I say there? Did you catch that? A viral infall event now in case you don't know what that means we are talking about a space virus this theory posits a sporadic the idea of spores being input from a a cosmic bacteria and or virus um that has has been introduced into the atmosphere and has the potential to interact with the evolving terrestrial life forms so um What's interesting and what has gotten people thinking about that is that in the case of this COVID-19, that there was an exceptionally bright fireball event that was seen in October, mid-October of 2019 over the uh, uh, Sunjian city. And so, you know, it's tempting for them that that observe this and and think that this is a possibility to speculate that the event had, had a role in what's now happening. In China it's interesting that they they're talking about how this happens the the fault it they talk about this theory talks about fall time through the atmosphere and how these particles would survive and not burn up and how they could um as far as as far as their uh I guess their virulent virulent nature could last for several months um uh, or even into well over a year until you started actually seeing this happen, I guess perhaps maybe it has to evolve and adapt to the local terrestrial life yeah it's 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 honestly this is my favorite one. it's a space virus uh and now, as far as the possibility or the the ability for that to actually be able to occur, I don't know i haven't I haven't uh dug into that enough to know if. If you could have that, but obviously it's 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 potential, right? It's there. We'd have space viruses. In that case, the question is, is every um, or most of the extreme pandemics that seem to hit us without warning and uh, that have very unique aspects to them, have those all been effectively extraterrestrial? Uh, because by their very nature, we're not at all prepared or acclimated for them as a species, as a as a biome and as a climate, you know. Uh so that's it's a fascinating discussion to have and it's by far my favorite uh theory that has popped up around the coronavirus. So we've been here a while, so let's wrap this up. Okay, shall we? I'm I'm ready honestly to put COVID nineteen to bed as a topic of discussion for the podcast. Uh and I'm sure you are too you've been inundated with it on the news, and no sense hearing about it here. Uh, I think we've adequately covered everything we need to on this. You know, as I've mentioned before, it seems that the key to all of this stuff, the statistics, the naming convention, the flashy websites, it's all about communication and the need to shape the narrative, the public reaction. Uh, It seems obvious, you know. Um, We always hear about the narrative air quotes, in news cycles over politics, conflict, natural disasters even. What makes this unique is that it's a product of their own doing. You're know, The same people, the governments and health organizations, that have convinced the public that flu-like symptoms are an existential threat-level enemy that requires constant vigilance and the help of big pharma to keep at bay, must now manage the fear, the paranoia, the suspicion, and the the backlash that inevitably results when an outbreak does occur. If you tell people that they're going to need to panic if it happens, they're going to panic. Especially when the enemy is one you can't see and could be hiding in plain sight. Still, while we apparently have difficulty making decisions in uncertainty... We can still make good decisions. We can take all this data and make rational, informed decisions, taking reasonable action. China has a high impact because they have decades of a one-child-only policy that has resulted in a large elderly population, which is highly susceptible to infections and complications. And I'm not even going to get into all of the other uh, you know, the humanitarian record of China uh, and the conditions of many of their large cities that make it a hotbed for, for this. Other examples, Japan, which is one of the four countries, only four countries outside of China with a recorded death, they also have a large aging population. Even the United States has a growing elderly population, as our baby boomer population has grown, we they, we have a large elderly population, more so than we've had in a long time, and the U.S. should be cautious. Uh, any other, go through, think of the demographic in your area, in your region, in your state, uh, in your town, in your community, and uh, and consider, I mean, if you or any of your family fits within the high-risk categories, you already know this. You already take care when going out in public or when traveling, because getting sick is a risk, not just with this chimera of a coronavirus, COVID-19. We, we all know this, I think. Yet, it it is e- easy for the public to get wrapped up in the panic, uh, given the coverage. Now, I think to explain that more, part three will finally get into the root cause of our modern pandemic fear. And we are finally going to discuss the Spanish flu outbreak of 1918. I promise. Okay, I think that's it. So, you know, until then, what do you think of this unfolding event? I mean, how concerned are you of COVID 19? Do you find any of the more sinister theories to be convincing? Or do you think that actually uh, this is a legitimate health concern? And I'm underestimating far too much and downplaying this. Let me know. Shoot me an email. I would love to hear from you. Contact at conspiracytheorology.com You can also find me on the socials at TheorologyPod. I'm really active on Twitter, and I'm active on Facebook. Okay. That's going to do it. You know all of the info can be found at conspiracytheorology.com including how to support the show on Patreon. Uh, I know I haven't talked about Patreon much, but they are for those of y'all that are familiar, uh, there is a new Spot the Lie episode. And uh, it's hilarious as always. And as we move forward this year, there is going to be more, much more content on Patreon. And on the website also are links to the merchandise store for t-shirts and other goodies. I'll admit, I'm having fun. I, I, I'm wearing a shirt right now. And uh, I've, got a, I've got a hoodie that's uh, really cool. It's great. Um, music. As always, is by Adam Henry Garcia. Now, I think that's it. I think I've covered everything. So until next time, remember: beyond the conspiracy and behind the belief lies the theoryology.